We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 162. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talk about online gaming, sort of, as digital heuristics. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast. Paul, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay. As of this recording, I'm still unemployed. So I guess I know what it feels like <laughs> to be a, a dig bum now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've been really busy with lots of other projects. So I think that's okay. How are you doing? How are you doing? Jeez, I can barely speak. How are you doing? And where are you? <laughs> Yeah. So I'm doing pretty good, actually, because we were down in the heat when you and I were both in Nevada. And then we moved up to southeastern mm -hmm. Washington, as I'd mentioned, where it got real smoky and super hot, like well over 100 degrees. And now we're in northwestern Washington. And the highs all this week in the new place we're at, this new campground, have been upper 60s and nice and cool. I've had a jacket on most of the time and it was a light rain today. It's just been pleasant comparatively. So can't complain. Good, good. All right. Well, we have some, we're kind of highlighting an entire journal today and we're going to, you know, I've picked out one article that I thought was interesting to, to kind of highlight a little bit, but this journal is something that uh, you found, Paul, and I had actually never heard of it. It's by IU um, Scholar Works Journal. Is that Indiana University? Is that what that IU stands for? Yeah, that's Indiana University. And what happened was, I've mentioned before that I volunteer at the Institute for American Indian Studies in Washington, Connecticut. And who I volunteer for there, the Associate Director, Assistant Director, I should actually know what his actual title is since I've been volunteering for him since last <laughs> December. Paul Wegner, he suggested that I, uh, he'd like uh, some photogrammetry projects. And so I've been investigating photogrammetry and I'm guessing, I don't remember distinctly, but I'm guessing that uh, my Google searches ended up uh, linking to an article in this journal. And I was shocked. I've never heard of it before, hmm. but it seems like it, you know, the articles that I saw seemed very interesting. Uh, I sent you in our Slack, I sent to you the uh, link to it, To and the journal seems good and might be interesting to, uh, to our listeners as well. Studies in Digital Heritage, a peer-reviewed open access journal. And uh, that all sounds good. I mean, every last bit of that sounds like it's above board. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And this is pretty cool. And the most recent... Volume, uh, if you will, the current issue, volume four, number tw number two. Now, this says 2020 on it, is and but I, I clicked on current, and that's the most yeah. current thing that came up. So, was this annual? Is that when this comes out? It's uh, biannual, uh, but it doesn't look like they've published one for uh, 2021 yet. So, I hope that this isn't a dead journal. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just yeah, 2020, not. 2021 got in everybody's way. Yeah, totally. And that happens. So I couldn't really fault him for that. But yeah, as, as Paul said, this is incredibly, this is all open access. So, and, and let me take a minute to highlight the fact that I'm sitting outside in a campground. So you're going to hear a bunch of noises that I cannot remove in the recording, <laughs> like the guy pounding behind me <laughs> and, and big diesel RVs driving by occasionally. So anyway, actually the volume we're going to link to is called, it's a special issue on 3D methodologies in Mediterranean archaeology. So uh, a bunch of articles, actually, I think four articles and an introduction on this very specific topic. So that is 
pretty cool. And they, I've looked at a couple of the past journals, just the titles too, and, and they've got a lot of really good stuff in here. Yeah, they do. So the article that, that kind of stuck out to me is called Online Gaming as Digital Heuristics. There's, a, again, like four really good looking articles here. Uh, so go check it out. And they're all open access. But Online Gaming as Digital Heuristics is the one that I looked at. Now, the interesting thing about this one is I, I kind of thought just reading the title that they were going to talk about online gaming, like Archeo Gaming, that people have talked about actually quite a bit in the last four or five years. And like Andrew Reinhardt wrote a book mm-hmm. about Archeo Gaming and all that. But essentially, they kind of just made their own game <laughs> based on 3D models that they made and then put it out on the web, basically, and said, hey, go play this game and had people go through there. And then they tracked their movements to, I, I guess, determine how we'll, we'll talk about this in a little more detail. But the overall view here is they tracked their movements to determine how they basically interacted with the architecture of this ancient structure that we'll talk about. So they wanted to see, well, when somebody approaches it, what door do they go in? What door do they go in next? What door do they go in after that? You know, what where do they naturally get led to? How are they naturally curious? And that's the kind of thing that they were looking for. So before we move on too much farther into this article in specific, I looked at that and you know me, I've said that I don't really have an interest in gaming. Uh, and though I respect people that do gaming and archeo gaming, it just isn't one of my interests. So that was the one I skipped over by the titles. But the one that, uh, that really caught my eye was, uh, well, actually the two, the structure for motion, which is probably, you know, doing the search for the IAIS stuff uh, is probably how I ended up on this journal. But uh, the other one, human versus computer vision and archaeological recording. Now, that's something I've talked about before. So that was the one I gravitated mm-hmm. to. I'm partway through that article. Very interesting in its own right. I'm not prepared to discuss it right now. Maybe we will in the future. <laughs> but I skipped past the online gaming one. <laughs> that was the one that you grabbed onto. And I do have to say, having read the article now, gaming is doing a lot of work here that I don't even know if it's the appropriate word there because it's gaming in the sense of using existing game engines in order to explore something about how people use space. It's not Mm -hmm. gaming in the sense of here's a task, uh, here's a puzzle, try to figure it out. Uh, It's not a game, really. It is only a game in the tools that are being used. And the other thing that I'll point out, uh, we didn't mention the, uh, the article's author, Miriam Clinton. I was just looking up her, and she was at Penn at about the same time I was. Um, probably didn't overlap because it would have been at the tail end of my PhD, and I'm guessing she was in a different department, not the anthro department. But I just thought that it was interesting that this is somebody that I, that mm-hmm. I may well have <laughs> come across in the past and have forgotten. The situation for this online gaming is uh, an, a house called the House of Rita at Sarah, which is a small island off Crete. And this is a, uh, a building that was excavated. Oh, geez, I've wrote it down and I've forgotten. It was about 2008, thereabouts. Uh, it was mm-hmm. fairly recently, anyhow. And she'd worked with the excavators and uh, goes then through the steps of turning their data into a model and turning that model into something that's deliverable on the internet. Oh, and we should definitely link to the site where she has that uh, published because uh, yeah. I went and played with it some too. I don't know if you did. Yeah, uh, No, I didn't actually. I was just reading the article. I haven't gotten around to the links yet. All right. Well, we'll definitely make sure that we get that link in there. Yeah, indeed. I mean, even just the, the photographs in the article, to be honest, are incredibly interesting to me. And 
It's really neat. Um, they did some good photogrammetry. They got some really awesome pictures of the place and and in order to build these models. And that's what you really need to do. And I mean, to take a little side trip here, we've talked to uh, Lithodomos VR. We've mm-hmm. talked to some other people involved in gaming. There used to be an Archeo Gaming podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you're interested in Archeo Gaming, please restart that podcast. I would love to have you do that. But anyway... It makes me wonder how close we're getting to like real, real, real gaming and, and gaming, gaming always drives stuff like other things that end up being productivity tools, right? Like gaming engines and, and stuff like that. It's like they always say pornography drives like <laughs> the internet. Yeah, <laughs> every people are always, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but no, gaming, gaming really does because it's such a expensive industry and they're always trying to push the, push the limit. And it, I mean, it's billions of dollars in gaming. So they're inventing new technologies that can be used in other facets of the internet. And I'm thinking with gaming and VR and all these different things and, and, and really getting good 3D models of our world, not just like big famous buildings, but, you know, a lot of things in our world. You start stitching this stuff together and you start ending up with a really cool model that you can go do stuff in, not just gaming, but but real things. And, man, I don't know how close we are to that, but it's a, it's an exciting time because it's all starting to come together a little bit. Well, that was the, uh, to me, the most interesting thing about the article. Actually, there were two. One was the architecture, which isn't necessarily tech focused. And maybe we'll discuss that a little later. Mm-hmm. But that she goes through step by step, now, not in detail to, to reproduce it yourself, but the, the major tools that she used and the challenges that she had with converting from you know the, the site maps, the photogrammetry that was done on site, the GIS and GPS surveying work that was done on site, converting that from one format to another, slowly building it up uh, initially in SketchUp, and then coming upon the limits of what SketchUp could do and moving that model across to, to Maya in order to do a better model there and then taking that model and going over to, um, well, this was done in Unity, wasn't it? You know, mm, I, I so. did. Yeah. I swear I took notes as I was reading <laughs> and I've forgotten, the, uh, and I've forgotten everything already. Uh, one of those days for me, I guess, in order to be able to create something that could be delivered on the web. And and that step by step, I've said it before when we've had other articles that that go through some of that step by step. Um, I always appreciate it. I like seeing the thought process and the kinds of challenges that the researchers are running into, and especially love how they uh, they they overcome those challenges. And that's uh, a big part of the start of this article. Yeah, well, I think that's a good introduction. Let's take a break real quick, and when we come back, we'll. Talk about a little bit more about the actual process of, of going through the house, because uh, that's one thing that kind of stuck in my head about, uh, you know, maybe some potential issues and biases that are involved. So let's take a break and come back on the other side and keep talking about this back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months, or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. 
Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Welcome back to episode 162 of the Architect Podcast. And we are talking about, well, online gaming as digital heuristics. And, you, you know, one thing... And maybe a maybe a closer read of the article will tell me this, but uh, one thing that I was kind of wondering about, that she does mention in the article that one of the reasons why this is a helpful study is because we can't physically ask the people that lived here, you know, a couple thousand years ago, <laughs> like how they used this house. You know, they're calling it a house, but you know, how did they use this? Mm-hmm. How many people even lived here? We have ethnographic studies, we have other records and things like that, but. What did people write down? There's a there's a bias in the lens of history. There's uh, there's all kinds of stuff. So trying to determine how people used a space has got to be just ridiculously hard. And and I think you can get real close by taking humans from now, dropping them on a landscape and say, approach and use this house and just see what they do. There's probably going to be a natural flow to it that, you know, our, our brains are the same now as they were 2000 years ago. Right. That's not hard. I mean, our brains have been the same for probably 10,000 years with with little change in cognitive ability. So I would say that our stimuli and how we react to something like a square house with doors and windows, which is what we live in today, we would interact with that in, in much the same way. But culturally, like, would we? You know, because there's a lot of places where if you mm-hmm. wear your shoes beyond the front door, you've just committed this mortal sin. And so there's a place in the front door, there's a foyer or something like that, where you can take off your shoes, you can do whatever. There's like a, a mud room in some houses. How's somebody 2000 years ago going to figure out what a mud room is in like a fancy house in a neighborhood? I mean, that's just like, like how do you determine that? And we're looking back 2000 years, but using people from modern day today with our biases towards our, our modern environment and saying, walk through this house. I'm just wondering the value of that data. Ultimately, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which was actually brought up in the, uh, the discussion in the article, uh, particularly the, mm-hmm. uh, the cultural aspect, how one expects to, to have different parts of the building isolated from you know who can go into it what kind what are notions of privacy or private space and public space and uh, and that is actually brought up and that's one of the major queries unanswerable uh, ultimately that's brought up in the in the article what i do want to say though is how this building was used what's known about it archaeologically is what kinds of vessels are found in it fragments of vessels um, mm. where are distinct use spaces and there's some discussion about grinding stones that's next to a bench by a door which lends credence to it being a um, to being a domestic structure someplace where people probably lived slept eight, so on. But there are also Riton fragments, which is why this building has its name, the House of the Rita, which are tend to be ceremonial vessels. 
probably mm. used in religious ceremonies because archaeologists, if we don't know what it is, it's <laughs> no, no, but we do, <laughs> we can make that, uh, <laughs> that assumption pretty safely, I think. And the interesting thing where this gets really cool in this particular building is the building is built on a slope. So even though it's a, the, the basics of it is a square four room structure, two of the rooms mm-hmm. communicate, that is, there's a doorway between them. And two of the, the other two rooms communicate, there's a doorway between them. But there's no obvious connection between one half and the other half of the building. And yet, right off fragments, and I don't know how many were found. I don't know on what context, either of discovery or excavation, you know, where they were distributed in the building and how many of these were accounted for. But there were ones found that were joining fragments on either side of that divide on the lower floor. So the assumption is that because of the steep slope that this house is built on, there would have been some way to communicate between one side and the other side, to travel between one side and the other side via a second story. And that second Mm. story was probably reserved mostly for ritual purposes, including things like these right So we, you know, from the traditional archaeological methods, we do have this sense of what this building was used for. It's a house with another function, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very cool. And then the, the, the problem though is, we don't have the upper stories. What we have is residue that, you know, the broken fragments that, that suggest that there's an upper story. Yeah. Other examples of buildings, of Minoan buildings that have upper stories, but we don't have that in this particular case. If, however, we do have an upper story, then that can explain how you get from side A of the building to side B of the building. But what would that look like? There aren't intact mm-hmm. staircases. I don't know if there was a discussion of the possibility of ladders. Uh, there was a mention of it. Where would those have been? Are there other kinds of, you know, and there are multiple floorings in here as it was reused through time. So it becomes a very complicated structure despite being a small, you know, like I said, square four-room building. And so mm-hmm. that's where this exploration, put, you know, creating the model, putting it online, letting people wander through it becomes an interesting test of, um, of how the space would be used. Because now- Yes, there are cultural elements that are not able to be accounted for, like you were saying, but there are physical constraints to how you move through the building that would probably affect people regardless of culture. You know, it's interesting because she mentions, if you're looking for it, it's in the paragraph right before the conclusions, that uh, the study represents a, well, it says that this is, the game is valuable, even though the data, there's inherent limitations in the data, but the, the studies, the game is still valuable because mm-hmm. it offers the first possibility of direct data on movement through ancient architecture. And I got to say, that is a little, I don't know if naive is the right word, but in, in real games like civilizations and, and some other games, I mean, they've reproduced pretty accurately some ancient structures, right? Some ancient structures, not only, you know, from a, just for this gaming standpoint, but they, they try to be really, really accurate. And I don't know if they've gone through and done photogrammetry, but they've definitely 3D modeled uh, a lot of ancient structures for a lot of really popular, well-funded video games in the past probably 10 years or so. And also, I've brought this up before, but Second Life. People have produced in Second Life 
relatively accurate models of ancient mm-hmm. structures. Uh, I know Pompeii is in there to some degree. I know the ancient Egyptian pyramids are in there to some degree. Some of them are, not all of them. And there's a number of other structures in there. So does the model need to be perfect to understand how people interacted and worked through it? Probably not. Does it need to be relatively close though? So you can check that out? Yeah, probably. And the fact that we're just not collecting that data is kind of the sad part, but people have definitely interacted with these structures like that before. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Assassin's Creed, that's, yeah, is famously known for, uh, <laughs> for using yeah, uh, about that. Know, models with expert input, you know, with input from architectural historians mm-hmm. and archaeologists as to how these buildings would have looked and functioned. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I just, I saw that. I didn't think it was naive. I think it was just an overstatement because there are other things, other examples that like you just pointed to that do exactly the same sort of thing. But I think that it was directed primarily to this, which I don't mm-hmm. know that we have any other example. I certainly can't think of any ones off the top of my head. Of course, like I said before, the whole archaeo gaming thing is mostly lost on me. So if there have been other examples, um, I probably wouldn't have noticed them. But the fact <laughs> that it was used as an exploratory means for people moving through space it was interesting. You know, it was definitely, I think that's a worthwhile endeavor, even if it was inconclusive. Yeah, it makes me wonder if the game designers for some of the bigger games like Assassin's Creed and stuff like that, what kind of data they collect and store. You know what I mean? Like, do they have movement data of players mm-hmm. through spaces? Or is that just simply too high volume of data to actually record? And and, and the games that aren't played online uh, or aren't, play, aren't played with an online component, of course, all those data would be on your device, on your PlayStation, computer, Xbox, whatever you're playing it on, and potentially not transferred back to the company at any point. So that that's completely lost. But for the online-based ones, I wonder how much that, of that they're actually tracking and ultimately using to better construct future worlds and quests and things like that. You know, it's like, hey, we put the thing down this hallway and literally nobody goes that way. <laughs> why? <laughs> you know, why, why aren't they checking that out? <laughs> yeah, I'm just guessing, but I, I would bet that they do use that. If not in, you know, calling massive amounts of general data from their uh, user population, I'm sure they would do that to some extent in, uh, you know, in focus groups and test groups, mm-hmm. just to see where people go and to, you know, to tailor the gaming experience. Because again, you said it's a, it's a huge industry. It's billions yeah. of dollars of industry. <laughs> yeah. and. Doing that would be part of, I think, you know, hiring good graphic designers and hiring, uh, you know, people who can make good physics engines and, you know, all the above that uh, that we already know about. How do people move through a building? And, and that's something too, you know, I've spent a lot of time in museums and museums, there's a lot of studies about how do people move through an exhibition space, Right. Most people tend mm-hmm. to go one way when they go through the door. Some people tend to go the other direction. What happens? How's the experience different when you go through it, you know, the way that the designers intended or you go through it backwards? Or do you just kind of randomly flit about because it's so busy? <laughs> I noticed that when we were at the Met for the first time, which you're well familiar with because you've been there probably thousands of times at this point. But uh, when we were there in uh, the Met in New York City, of course, I mean, Sure, there's kind of a flow to the whole place, but I I did find that there was no real 
like close, clearly defined flow. You know what I mean? Like it, they kind of lead you in a little bit, but mm-hmm. then you're, you're left with some choice. To me, that was a little bit confusing because I'm the kind of guy that I need to see everything in a certain order. Like I need to know that I covered everything. And the only way to do that is to do it, you know, in an order that ensures that I won't have missed anything. And mm-hmm. I'm not hundred percent certain that I did see everything. You know what I mean? In the, in the exhibits we went to because of the nature with which you go through the place as a, as a first pass through it, I'm like, right. Um, did we see this already? Did we come through here? <laughs> yeah. And, and it can be a labyrinth, that building. So you get into some places yeah. and there isn't necessarily a natural flow because, uh, you've got a bit of a loop somewhere and depending whether you come mm-hmm. from, you know, from one department's galleries or another department's galleries, when you get to that loop, uh, you can get a very different experience and loop. I just mean, you know, a series yeah. of hallways or connected rooms that you could go around in a circle if you wanted. The other thing that I noticed was, Again, taking cultural bias into account, uh, not necessarily cultural bias, but function and use, right? Like when I walk into the house back before I had an RV that was literally a linear corridor and I went through everything in one second. But uh, when I would go into a house, if I have been on a long drive and I really have to go to the bathroom, that's the first place I go. If I'm hungry, I might go to the kitchen. If I'm, you know, if it's if it's nighttime and I'm getting home late, I might be going, you know, to the closet by the front door and then straight up to the bedroom. Uh, or maybe to the bathroom first and then to the bedroom, you know, closet, something like that. So, so your path through Mm -hmm. the space is going to be determined by your need at the time and what the space is capable of giving you. So that's another thing I think would be really hard to test and simulate with people just walking through an empty 3d space, you know, without real thought to what's in there and what those rooms are used for. Yeah. Uh, what those rooms are used for makes me think of in Yemen, uh, where I worked, the bottom story of these mud brick tower houses that they have in South Yemen is typically reserved for animals. So it'll be animal pens. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And then I was thinking, looking at this floor plan, I mean, all the questions I have about this article, I would love to have a, a discussion with her about how she came up. And she does explain her, her rationale for a lot of things, but I had a lot of alternate explanations for or questions why alternate explanations weren't uh, explored in this article. I've spent a lot of time looking at architectural plans and flow through buildings. It was kind of my thing back in the day. And I look at them and I'm like, well, maybe the function of this isn't really primarily for people. Maybe this part is, uh, is an animal pen. Mm-hmm. I don't know what preservation would have been like there. I don't know if they would have found animal dung because I've certainly found plenty of animal dung in the bottoms of, uh, in, you know, the basement floors of, uh, of ancient buildings in Yemen. So you know exactly what it is and you know what it is by, uh, by analogy with modern buildings too, where they still practice that behavior. Mm-hmm. But then there were, there were comments about things like um, – uh, about painted plaster in the building. Well, that could certainly affect how you approach that building, right? I mean, oh, yeah. you go into a building and you might have been brought in there blindfolded, but you know by seeing that exit sign over the door that that's your way out, mm-hmm. right? That's a cultural clue. If you didn't know how to read that, if you weren't brought up since you know <laughs> your entire life uh, in the US, you wouldn't know necessarily that that's exactly what that meant, but you do. Maybe right. there are other things. Oh, you know what? In COVID, we suddenly started all the supermarkets had arrows painted on the ground. Before, you used to go in and just take whichever <laughs> path you wanted through the supermarket. And for half a year there, it became very awkward. Anytime you'd see somebody going against the uh, the grain of the arrows, you know, they've, they've disappeared again. Mm-hmm. But that's a kind of cultural clue that in the case of the COVID example is really specific temporally, but also does affect how people 
approach that space and use it. Uh, so there are all sorts of questions I had like this, none of which had to do with the tech. It all had to do with the interpretation of the building, which let, let's cue that up for our last segment, just that, that interplay between interpretation, tech, back to interpretation and evaluation, because I think that, that you know, we might have uh, an interesting discussion around that, you and me. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So yeah, let's take a break and come back and wrap up this discussion on the other side. Back in a second. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 162. Today, we're having a discussion about, but mostly around, a recent article that we read in the Studies in Digital Heritage Journal. And the article is called Online Gaming is Digital Heuristics by Miriam G. Clinton. Uh, and it centers around her work, which might actually be part of her dissertation work. I haven't looked into that, but it sounds familiar or sounds similar. Reconstructing a house, a Minoan house on the small island uh, off Greece. And my big questions, I enjoyed the article quite a bit. And all the criticisms I had or critiques I had of the actual process and what could be done and what could be learned from uh, from the 3D models, putting it online, all that stuff, were actually answered or acknowledged at least in the discussion of the article itself. So my focus, because I've always had an interest in you know, in vernacular architecture, architecture in uh, in archaeology, interpretation of architecture, and so on. It was really on the architecture, <laughs> shocker, and it was that interface between interpreting the architecture as a structure, converting it to something that could be distributed online, and then the interpretation then of how people use it. And th- that those it's those those junctures between interpreting and converting it to something else that I, that I thought there might be some grist there for, for Chris, for you and me to discuss. How did you feel in general about her discussion of building the building based off of the archaeology and the photogrammetry uh, in 3D space on the computer? You know, it was definitely interesting, and I and I appreciate what they did. There is some creative license that has to be taken when you're trying to fully reconstruct a building that you don't have a full mm-hmm. reconstruction for. I mean, if you look at the images of the the actual excavation and like the maps and stuff like that, I mean, this is a crumbled, you know, rubble, and, and they really had to take the pieces of what they saw there and reconstruct back again what this thing looked like. And again, I'm I'm sure they had historical data to go on and some some other examples of buildings like this from either either paintings or drawings or, or descriptions or something like that so they could you know more accurately uh, create this kind of thing but I don't know I thought it was I to be honest I thought it was well done um, I thought it was really well done I go back to actual gaming like gaming companies and the billions of dollars they have to throw mm-hmm. at this kind of stuff and and I think of a, I honestly, I don't know what, uh, what Miriam is, but I think of somebody, an author like this, a researcher, whether they're a grad student or, or whomever, 
you know, sitting, toiling away, spending hours learning these programs and then doing these things and, and making all this effort when there are teams of people set up to do this in, you know, big gaming warehouses where they've got people just coding this stuff and, and building these things and crafting it to just like minute degree with fantastic gaming engines behind them. And I'm wondering if we can't just partner with these people, right? Like you get a fantastic game. Mm-hmm. We get to record the data of people going through there and let's help you make that even more accurate and more realistic and give you some real things to look at and do. And you just give us the movement and interaction data. You know, it goes back down to motivation as well too, right? If your motivation is to uh, kill the zombies or find the treasure, that's going to be different than live in the house and go to the kitchen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, but taking that into account, I appreciate definitely what she did. These are very impressive models, but man, we're spending so much time on this stuff when, when other people are just cranking it out and would probably appreciate the, uh, the expertise. Yeah, well, the expertise is really the rub. And I'll freely admit, my knowledge of Minoan architecture is zilch. Uh, but looking at the, uh, the the actual plans drawn in the field of the, the building, I read it slightly differently. Now, I wasn't there firsthand, mm-hmm. and I will tell you personally that being on any archaeological site with architecture firsthand gives you so much better of a sense of what that architecture is like mm. than any plans, descriptions, photographs, photogrammetry, any oh of that God. crap that I've ever seen before. Um, yeah. So my initial impressions, you know, having looked at it for a couple minutes is not worth a hill of beans, but I did see it <laughs> differently, which is why I would love to have that discussion. I would love to have a sit down with somebody else who obviously knows this material and also thinks about how people use space, how people use buildings in the past uh, and find out, well, well, why did you discard the use of ladders between these areas as quickly as you did? Because that was my first thought. I'm like, well, oh, sure. There's probably like a, an elevated doorway between these two buildings and we've just lost that threshold. But definitely mm-hmm. I would have a ladder there. But instead of a ladder, there was a complex series of staircases that took up fully a third of the uh, the floor space of the reconstruction. Um, now, mind you, in the reconstruction, there were wooden staircases, so you could still use the space underneath the staircases. But that seemed like uh, excessive to me. You know, I didn't think that you needed to have staircases through each space in order to access a presumable presumably uh, common space on the top, uh, on the upper story. But I don't know. I was had questions that frankly didn't even affect the, the question of the game of the flow. But like the upper story, I was wondering, is that really an upper story or is that a roof that's used as you know a particular space? I don't know yeah. what it's like in Minoan culture. I do know that in Iraq, you know, up into the modern day, Sure, on those hot summer days, people sleep up on the um, on the the rooftop because it's the coolest place in the house. It's the place <laughs> that's not in the house. Would that have been done here? I don't know. Would it have been used as an open air ritual space with those raita? I don't know. I don't know Minoan culture if that would have been something to do or if you know ritual space would always be enclosed. Uh, but geez, I have so many questions. <laughs> and th- th- then for me, it's translating those questions I had then into the model because the model fixes a certain viewpoint. Yeah. Right. Once you have the model that you're going to explore people's movement through it, the fact that there's three different, four kind of different staircases through it affects how people transfer. What if there was only two staircases, one for each side? 
What right. if there was one staircase and a ladder that allowed you to get up through, you know, from the lower part of the building to the upper part of the building uh, of this ground floor? Yeah. All that would radically change the way that people use the space. And so, again, this is brought up in the uh, the discussion. This is not something the author doesn't know. I'm, it's not a criticism at all of the work that she did, which I, I like you, I'm very impressed with. It's just Wow, that that's where my brain went. It's all the, all these questions about wait, wait, why why did you make this particular decision? So if it's explained, but not necessarily in the the, the depth and detail that me, architecture geek, would have liked. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I always wonder too about reconstructing something that's so old and complex, especially something that's architecturally related, um, a piece of architecture, because in a place that was as heavily populated as this area. When was the building truly abandoned, you know, and, and how much how much reuse happened after the initial use, the, you know, the original layout and floor plan? Is this even the original layout and floor plan? Because this, this isn't a paper about the building itself, so we don't have the details on whether or not they can figure no. out that, uh, you know, there were add-ons and, and other pieces. Like, we don't, we don't have that kind of detail in this article because that's not the focus of the article. But, but you're having people walk through what it looks like essentially now, right? The, the current layout and the current floor plan, but this building could have been around for, I don't know, hundreds of years. Is that out of the, is that out of question? And who knows how many things were added on, how the floor plan was changed, how the use of the building was changed and all the artifacts and use that have built up over time reflect all of those activities, not just the original activity with which mm-hmm. the layout was, or part of the layout anyway, was originally designed. So this is an, an incredibly complex problem. And, you know, this goes a step towards learning a little bit more about this culture, but man, it just makes me wonder. Unless I misread it, which is entirely possible. My reading comprehension sucks sometimes. Um, <laughs> it, it seemed like there were basically two major phases of this building without any serious change to the floor plan. Now, I'm curious, there is a kind of a dingus hanging off one end of it. Um, dingus being the correct technical term. that looks like an annex. <laughs> It looks like a yeah. later edition. <laughs> but the basic floor plan uh, looks like it's fairly static. Now, there are multiple floors and there's uh, there's probability of some change in use of the rooms over time is my understanding. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the final phase, which is what this uh, is trying to represent, follows uh, a destruction, a fire. Yeah. And so I think by focusing on one phase of it, that you can that you can fairly you know easily in big quotes because nothing's easy isolate then you know at least you're taking a snapshot in time and you're right you know buildings do change and I know that for having worked with uh, with mud brick architecture is that buildings can really be mutable you know mud brick buildings mm-hmm. are famously constantly reconstructed and walls knocked down and parts added on and you know interpreting that can be really difficult but this building is at least in its foundation levels it's um it's stone which is less conducive to that kind of monkeying with basic floor plan sure and it wasn't this area more um famously prone to earthquakes as well which earlier reconstructions of this might be completely gone if that's the case yeah yeah and it does seem, it seems like a wonky little house. I would like to know more. And this would have mean me going back and looking at the uh, at the actual excavation reports. I'd like to know more about, you know, population estimates. How big of a town is this? I mean, it's a fairly, if you look at 
Sarah, P-S-E-I-R-A, and you'll see Mm -hmm. that in the show notes. Uh, If you look at that in Google Maps, it's a very barren little island. (laughs) You know, how many people could have or would have lived there at any one time in antiquity? Uh, You know, I don't know if it was barren in antiquity. It may have been, you know, deforested since. But but these are the kinds of questions that, that also inform how this building would have been used and by whom. That also brings up another aspect of archaeology too, right? Like we, we, we generally try to, I don't know if explain is the right word, but interpret and understand the culture as a whole in general terms before we really like to get to, you know, specifics because we like to understand how do these people fit in with their landscape and the other cultures around them. And that's difficult to do when you're talking about maybe a one-off, you know, and we always talk about island archaeology in the context of like animals and island dwarfism and stuff like that. But I have to imagine culturally, it's got to be the same for people, right? Like people would have interacted with the space that they had in, in its limited capacity on a small island like this, probably in a really different way than if you're in, say, you know, Greece, <laughs> like Athens, Athens, I should say, and, you know, or Rome or something like that. You're in a much bigger space. So that's got to have an impact on it and make it not as representative of this culture as a whole, but more representative of life on this island, perhaps. Perhaps, but uh, the uh, the counter argument might be that uh, it's Minoan and they're famously sailors and would, you know, island hop frequently. So, again, it's well outside of any knowledge I have <laughs> other than, you know, well, Minoans are sailors. Um, <laughs> yeah. But there might not be much variability or distinction from one island to the next within their culture. They might have a very reproducible set of, you know, house floor plans that they, Mm -hmm. you know, build every time they plop down someplace new. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But these are all the kinds of questions. And actually, I think that gets to a lot of what I liked about this article is that, wow, we've, you know, we know nothing about this. (laughs) <laughs> you and me, Chris, but we've just had a 45-minute discussion about the article and about questions and things that excites us and things that we wonder more about, which um, which is successful in, you know, in my book. I mean, that is the, to me, that is really the major point of publishing articles. Uh, people who are academics might say, you know, well, I do it to survive and keep my job. And I totally understand that. But the rest of us appreciate that because we get to have these discussions. <laughs> It's definitely the point of podcasts. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, we will leave these links in the show notes. Um, the link to the sketch fab, uh, which I've just been twirling around with my trackpad here for the last like 15 minutes and kind of zooming in and out on pieces of this house. Super cool. Uh, just being able to look at that. And it is kind of neat taking this mm-hmm. this rough architectural history, these remains and producing a house out of it. It is impressive. Nonetheless, like I had some, I had a few criticisms, but that's science, right? Nothing's ever perfect and you should have criticisms, but ultimately I'm incredibly impressed by this photogrammetry. The model is really good. It's really well lit. I mean, it's just, it's just really well done. And then the 3d reconstructions are really well done as well. So I definitely suggest checking this out, check out the other three articles in this special issue and, you know, bookmark this journal. I don't know when the next volume coming out, but it's open access and, you know, these should be shared. I'm looking at this model on Sketchfab and it's only been viewed 19 times and this article has been out for a year. So let's get some eyes on this because it's super cool and share it to your Facebook feed because I think you can manipulate models in your Facebook feed. I think those links work like that. So that's pretty cool. Well, it's now been viewed 20 times. (laughs) There you go. 20 times. All right. It's getting that APN bump. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I was the 20th. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. Well, um, again, <laughs> check out the links and we will come back and uh, talk about something else next time. We'll see you guys next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.